Everybody, good morning. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. Um, I'm Julie, if I haven't met you, and I'm really glad that you're all here with us this morning. Whether you are here in person or if you're watching with us online, um, it's great to have you. If you're watching with us online, it's uh, we love community and we love to like have that sense of that even if you're online. So if you want to comment, let us know where you're watching from or say good morning. Um, I was kind of thinking you could even say good morning in another language if you want. It'd be interesting to see how many different languages we know uh, within our congregation. So, um, so this morning we are continuing in our study of the book of Habakkuk, as you heard uh, Zach read. And we're calling this series, Finding God When Things Fall Apart. And last week, Joel kind of set us up uh, as how we're thinking about this, about how 2020 has been just a kind of crazy year. Uh, and he shared some of the memes, the like, my plans 2020 memes. And so uh, I'm just share, this one was my favorite. I know he shared it last week, but 2020 is like, I'm gonna let you finish, but <laughs> here are all the other things I'm gonna throw at you before you get to the end of the year. Um, and so we talked about how a proper response to a crazy year like 2020 that has had injustice and all sorts of difficult things happen is to lament. And we saw that in Habakkuk in the first uh, little section that Joel preached on last week. We see that his lament is an example of what it looks like for us to do when it feels like things are falling apart. How can we approach God? How can we talk with him when it feels like everything is just crazy? So for Habakkuk, in, the, in his context, he's looking at all of the evil and injustice and suffering and conflict and everything around him. And he's saying, hey God, what are you going to do about this? And today we're going to get to hear God's response. And then we'll hear a little bit of what Habakkuk thinks about God's response. So let's start by taking a closer look at what God has to say. He says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. So implied in this response is the fact that God is actually acknowledging all of Habakkuk's complaints. And I think we have to focus on that and take a second before we dive into like what God's plan is going to be to do about all of this, to just acknowledge that God is saying, hey, I see this. I see how royally messed up our people are. Uh, I see the injustice and I have a plan to deal with it. And I think this would have been really surprising for Habakkuk. Because in his lament last week, uh, he said, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? So we don't know how long Habakkuk has been petitioning God about this, but it seems like it's been a while. It seems like it's something that he's pretty uh, worked up about. He's pretty much like, hey, I've been talking about this and you're not listening. How long is this going to take, God? And so I probably felt a little bit taken aback, like, oh, you've been seeing this this whole time? Okay. And I think sometimes that surprises us when we hear that God has seen all of the things that we're uh, lamenting, because we think, well, if God saw this, he would do something about it, right? If God is good and he's just, then he would do something about the injustice that I'm complaining about, that I'm lamenting. And I think that on one hand, you're right, God is good, God is just. 
And on the other hand, I think we need to evaluate our uh, thoughts of how we got there a little bit, because it might be a little bit prideful for us to assume that God is going to respond exactly the way that we would if we were him, right? To say, well, God's not doing what I would do in this situation about it if I were God, so clearly he must not see it. Clearly he must not be doing anything about it. Uh, but I do get it. It's hard to feel like God is silent or to feel like he, you are praying and lamenting and he's not hearing you. You're not getting any response. So before we dive into what God does and how he responds, I do want to give a little bit of encouragement. If you're feeling like you're in a, in a season where you're crying out to God and you feel like, what gives? I'm not getting any answer. I'm not like getting any response at all from God. So when you feel like that, when you feel like you're waiting and wondering, uh, one of the things that I often turn to is a story in the Old Testament uh, from, about a girl named Hagar. So this story happens in Genesis 16, and it's a story about a young slave girl named Hagar, and her master wants to have children, but she can't. So she tells her husband to go sleep with uh, her slave girl, and Hagar gets pregnant. And then her master gets jealous and basically sends her away. And so Hagar was abused, she was mistreated, she had multiple big injustices committed against her. And while she's out in the desert, after she's been kicked out and kind of ran away, an angel of God appears to her. And the angel speaks to her and he says that God understands her pain. And he says, God has a plan for your future child. And one of the things he does is the angel names her kid and she says, you will call your son Ishmael. And the name Ishmael actually means God hears. So God knows, he sees that there's this, been this big injustice committed against her. And the angel comes and says, I'm going to give your child a name that will always remind you that God hears your injustices. He sees it. He hears you when you lament. And how uh, Hagar responds is that she says, you are the God who sees me. And she actually gives God a name that kind of translates roughly to the God who sees. So if you're feeling like you're stuck in an injustice or you're seeing all the injustices happening in our world uh, and you're feeling like no one is listening, no one cares, and God has nothing to do with it, I want to remind you that God is a God who hears us and sees us. Whatever you're going through, even if you feel like God is silent or absent, there are several examples in scripture, the story of Hagar, and even we'll see in the book of Habakkuk, it's a good example that God does hear our cries. And we can hold on to that reminder that our God is a God who sees us, who hears us. He cares about the injustices that are happening, and he has something that he wants to do about it. And we're going to see that in Habakkuk as well, that God does see the injustice that Habakkuk is lamenting. But most of this passage really is talking about kind of what God's plan to uh, deal with the injustice is and how Habakkuk feels about that plan. So we're going to get into that, but I did want to just give that encouragement that if you are feeling like uh, in a season of lament, that God hears you and he sees you. Okay, so let's move on and let's look at what God actually says again. So I mentioned, I read this and Zach read it as well, but I'm going to read it again. He says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Sounds nice, right? 
Uh, Joel told me a funny story that he once saw um, like kids on a mission trip and you know sometimes they have like shirts made that kind of represent like hey we're with this group or this church or whatever and a lot of times they'll have like a scripture verse on the back that's like their verse for that trip and Joel said that he saw one that had this as the verse the look I would be utterly amazed I'm going to do something you would never believe but here's, here's why context matters, folks. This is why it matters that when you're reading your Bible, you know what comes after the verses that you pick. Because right after that, God says, I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. So this amazing thing that we're waiting to see that God, no one would believe is that God is going to raise up the Babylonians to deal with Israel's injustice. And the way they're going to deal with it is they're just going to sweep uh, across the whole earth and seize everything that's not their own, including everything the Israelites had. So this is going to leave Habakkuk in utter amazement when he hears this. Um, And if you don't know who the Babylonians are, that's okay. The text actually tells us, right? It says that they're ruthless, impetuous. Um, In the rest of the passage that Zach read, it says that they go around conquering and stealing. They're feared and dreaded by everyone around them. They're guilty. They're people who idolize their own strength. And all of this is according to God. God is saying this about all of these people. And so God is telling Habakkuk that, yeah, these people, they're horrible. They're really messed up. And yet I'm going to use them to deal with all of the things that make you really messed up and all the things that make your people really messed up. And this is very confusing to Habakkuk. In fact, maybe even infuriating to Habakkuk because he sees the Babylonians as the lowest of the low. He's like, why would you use these horrible people to deal with our sins that aren't nearly as bad? Hey, that is not fair. All I was asking is that you would chastise the Israelites, you know, maybe give them a little slap on the wrist. I didn't want you to bring an entire army against us, and especially not the Babylonians. How could you? They are the worst. That is how Habakkuk feels. And we see it in verse 13. He says, he's appealing to God, and he says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? So he appeals to God's holiness and goodness. He says, hey, you can't tolerate wrongdoing, so why would you tolerate the Babylonians? Why would you let them prosper at our expense? Sure, we have problems, but they're like way worse than us. And one of the things I find really interesting about this is that he's not even trying to make the point that the Israelites are innocent. Right? That's the whole reason he's been complaining to God and lamenting to God. He's saying, hey, my people are really messed up. So he's not even trying to make the, the claim that they're innocent, but he is saying, hey, we're at least better than them over there. We're way better than them. He recognizes the brokenness in his own community, but he thinks that the Babylonians seem to have way more brokenness. And then, therefore, it's not fair that they would be the ones who get to prosper and bring justice against the Israelites. So if you asked Habakkuk how he viewed these two groups, he probably would have said like, yeah, if this is like, we're all broken, the Israelites are like, here, I'm, I'm pretty upset with them. But the Babylonians are like, way down here. It's such a huge difference. So as I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but think uh, of the TV show, The Good Place. Has anybody seen this show? 
raise your hand so I, or nod so I can, okay. I've got a few people who have seen it. Um, I won't say too much about it because I don't want to spoil it, um, but it's this comedy, it's pretty recent. It's highly irreverent, um, but also very funny. So if you're okay with that, uh, it's, it's a pretty funny show. Um, and the whole plot is kind of that there's this idea that there's life after death and there's a good place and a bad place. And there's this like cosmic scorekeeping mechanism that gives everybody points or takes away points based on what they do in their life on Earth. And it determines ultimately if you end up in the good place or the bad place. I took this screenshot from um, uh, an article that was talking about the good place and it shows like some of the, these are like real examples from the show of things that they like talk about like give you points. I'm just sharing it because it's a funny example, but I laughed really hard that eating vegan can give you 425.94 points, but never discussing veganism unprompted gives you 9,875 points. So it's just a funny uh, example. And it's funny because we don't believe that God works this way, right? We don't believe that this is how the afterlife works or how we get, you know, how things go in our life presently. But you do see sprinkles of this thinking in how Habakkuk is talking. He's saying, sure, we're messed up, but they're way more messed up than, than we are. We've got way more points than them. We've never discussed veganism unprompted. But here's the thing. In doing this, he's playing a comparison game. Habakkuk seems to be missing the point entirely. If God can't tolerate wrongdoing, like Habakkuk says, then God shouldn't be able to tolerate the Israelites any more than he tolerates the Babylonians. Just because they may not be as messed up as the Babylonians doesn't excuse their own sin. In fact, by playing the comparison game, Habakkuk actually finds himself in more brokenness because the truth is that comparison always leads to pride. And pride actually pushes us away from God and from each other. C.S. Lewis has this great quote about comparison. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. So in comparing his own nation to the nation of Babylon, Habakkuk has an inflated view of his own people. He pridefully misses the depths of his own sin, which is ironic because that's the reason he went to God in the very first place, right? It's to talk about the sin that he saw in his country. And because that's really what we do when we compare ourselves, is that we look down on another group of people and we're saying, well, really, I'm not all that bad. It's almost a defense mechanism sometimes, I think, to help us not feel quite as bad about ourselves because we're like, well, you know, I'm, yeah, I may not be doing perfect, but that person over there, I mean, at least I'm better than they are. And I think we see this a lot. Uh, some specific examples I feel like that have come up more recently is that people are willing to recognize, like, hey, I have implicit bias when it comes to race and when it comes to uh, matters of, like, justice but at least I'm not like those people over there who post like overtly racist things. Or you might say, yeah, all political candidates are flawed, but at least I'm not like those people who vote for that candidate. Or maybe I'm not idolizing my family, or maybe I'm idolizing my family, my job, or my comfort, but at least I'm not, you know, abusing my family or stealing from my job or addicted to drugs. And I'm glad you're not doing those things. 
And Jesus says in Matthew 5 that you have heard that it said that those who live long ago don't commit murder, and all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. If they say to their brother or sister, you idiot, they will be in danger of being condemned by the governing council. And if you say, you fool, they will be in danger of fiery hell. So it's pretty intense, right? Jesus is saying, yeah, murder is bad. Don't do that. But if you are angry at someone in your heart, you're just as bad as someone else who commits murder. And that seems crazy to us because that's just not how we think. But it's saying, Jesus is saying, hey, you're all falling, falling short of a life that worships and follows me, whether it's in really obvious ways or in not so obvious ways. And I'm not, and I don't think Jesus is trying to say that in this lifetime on earth, we should treat murder with the same consequences as calling somebody an idiot. Okay, I think here, while we're here on earth, it does matter that some sin needs higher consequences and needs more accountability because it can hurt other people and it can be a really big problem. But when it comes to the spiritual matter of it, all sin is turning from God and worshiping something else. And it's a huge injustice to God. He's not keeping a leaderboard of who's doing better than others. He's completely holy, completely pure, and he can't tolerate wrongdoing in any of us. So when we continually compare ourselves to others, it actually pushes us further away from God because it makes us think, hey, I, you know, yeah, I may, I may need a little bit of help, but I don't need that much help. I, don't, I only need Jesus like a little bit in this specific area of my life. I don't actually need him completely. So it pushes us away from him and it makes us prideful. And for those of you who think, no, okay, I get it. Yeah, for people who are, are comparing other people and looking down on other people, that makes sense. But I don't do that. When I compare myself to others, I don't think I'm better than them. I actually think I'm worse than them. And I just feel bad about myself when I compare to other people. And I want to challenge that thinking a little bit and, and say that there's actually pride in that as well. I've talked with a lot of women uh, who constantly compare themselves to others. This is not just a women's issue. I just used to work as a women's ministry director, so I talked to a lot of women about this. Uh, and they think, if I just work on my self-esteem, that'll fix everything. I just have low self-esteem. That's the problem. And if I just go to therapy, and therapy is good. I see a therapist. I'm not saying therapy is bad. Uh, but they're told to say, like, well, I just have to go, go to therapy. I just need to work on self-acceptance and self-love and self-care. And if I do all of those things, then I'll have better self-esteem. And then eventually they come back and they say, I'm confused because none of these things that I'm working on are actually making me feel any better. And the reason is, is that all of those things still put focus back on ourselves. We're still thinking about ourselves. We're trying to work on self-love, self-care, self-acceptance. And when we are constantly thinking about ourselves, it's not helping us get anywhere. When we're thinking too lowly about ourselves, we're still self-focused. And one of the definitions of pride is just consciousness of your own dignity. So awareness of your own self, basically. So if you're constantly thinking about yourself, you're still falling into pride. And so there's some imaginary line, I think, that we think there is. And we think for, other pe for the people who think, look down on people, we say, well, as long as I'm not below that line, then I'm fine. 
And the people who feel bad about themselves think, if I could only get to that line, then I would be fine. If I could only be as thin as that influencer or as organized as my coworker or whatever it is, we just think if I could get there, then I would be okay. But all of these lines are arbitrary. They're self-focused and they distract us from the real point. And the real point is that comparison pushes us away from God and from other people. It pushes us from relying on him to relying on ourselves. And it pushes us away from wanting to be in community with one another, which we're called to be. And I think we're really feeling this right now with everything heightened in 2020, right? Everything is just heightened in 2020. Um, but I was talking with some friends recently, and they brought up how it seems like there's just so much shame going around. It's like whether, whatever decisions you make, you feel shame about it from one person or another, right? Whether you send your kids back to daycare or you decide to homeschool, whether you go back to working in the office or you continue to work remotely, are you going to see your family for holidays or are you going to spend Thanksgiving at home? And it feels like there's so much fear around making these decisions because it's like, well, you know, I'm going to compare myself to the decisions that everybody else made and I'm going to feel shame or I'm going to feel uh, like proud that I did this and they did that. Whatever it is, it's pushing us away from each other. It's tearing us apart in those different ways. And last week, Joel talked about what some people or what this author he read called the crack in everything. And so it's just this idea that there's this brokenness and this sin that permeates everything in our world. But the thing that we need to realize and that I think we're seeing in Habakkuk is that the crack in everything is also in us. And there's no line that we just need to stay above. There's no special thing of working on ourselves and you know, doing this specific self-care thing that's going to fill that crack. Only Jesus can do that. We need to recognize that we're all cracked and we all deserve justice. So that's the bad news. But the good news is, is that Habakkuk was actually right about something. God's plan is unfair, but it's actually unfair in our favor. Because all along, God has the ultimate answer to the injustice of God's people and the injustice that's done to God's people in mind. He knew that all of this injustice would be taken care of in Jesus. So when injustice happens, we want someone to take the consequences on themselves. And instead of keeping track of everybody's justice points and picking the person who has the, the uh, least amount of points to take on the consequences, God chooses to do it himself. He comes down to earth. He experiences all sorts of injustices against him, but he never fights back. And he takes all of the consequences on himself when he dies on the cross. All the consequences, the big, the small, the things you think need to be taken care of, the things you don't, all of it. And then of all things, he offers us forgiveness. All of us, the people we think deserve it and the people we think don't deserve it. He offers it to all of them. And in the early church, we actually see this. Paul uh, quotes from Habakkuk, from the, the passage we read today, while talking about this. So in Acts 13, he says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. 
So you remember this line, it's the one we first read to talk about how God's going to do something crazy uh, about all the injustice in the world. And in Habakkuk, he's referring to bringing Babylon uh, to um, conquer their nation and sort of using one injustice, the injustice of, using, of letting Babylon prosper, to take care of another injustice, what the people of Israel were doing. But here, Paul takes this quote from Habakkuk and applies it to Jesus. He's saying, remember when God did something crazy and he used one injustice to take care of another? Well, he does the same thing in Jesus. It's a total injustice that Jesus died on the cross, but he uses that injustice to take care of all of ours. He deals with it in this strange, crazy way that you might not even believe at first when someone tells you. But Paul is saying, don't miss this. Don't scoff at what Jesus does for us and God's plan to deal with injustice. God is offering us forgiveness, but in order to take it, you have to understand that we all need it. That even if you're not as bad as that person over there, you still need saving. No amount of self-love or therapy or working on it is going to help. You need Jesus. And I love this quote I read in one of the commentaries about Habakkuk. He says, For both the depth of God's righteousness and the depth of his love are incomprehensible. God is righteous. He needs to bring about justice. And we, like Habakkuk, want that, right? Last week we talked about how we want justice to happen and we lament when it doesn't, just like Habakkuk did. And God's love is so incomprehensible that instead of bringing those consequences down on those who deserve it, which to be clear is all of us, he takes it upon himself. And that love and the justice on the cross reconciles us not only to God, but also to the people that we compare ourselves against, the people we look down on, the people we think, as long as I'm not like them. God makes a way for us to be reconciled too. Can you imagine that? I just think if God told Habakkuk, hey, someday I'm going to make it so that an Israelite and a Babylonian can sit down together, they can be friends, they're even going to be part of the same family of God together. He would have thought God was crazy. And we can easily think that too. But in Christ, it's a level playing field. All of us can come together, we can worship him without comparison, without pride, without concern of how many points we have or how many good or bad things we've done in our lives. I like to think that if Habakkuk could see God's ultimate plan, he might be baffled and amazed, like the text said, but eventually he would see that God is both just and loving and we can trust what he is doing in our world. So when we ask for justice, that's good but we need to recognize our own need for justice as well. And when we see that pride in ourselves, instead of sinking into more shame, we can repent and ask for God's forgiveness. And repentance, I think, sometimes sounds like this word that's like big and weighty and scary, but truly, it doesn't have to be this big, scary thing. I've been reading this book called Liturgy of the Ordinary, um, and the author, Tish Harrison Warren, says that repentance is not usually a moment wrought in high drama. It's the steady drumbeat of a life in Christ. So seeing our own pride and repenting, it doesn't have to be scary. Because just as Paul says in Acts, he says, through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. We can repent, accept God's forgiveness, and praise him for his grace. So we, uh, as we've been doing this in this COVID time, we've been having a song of reflection after, uh, after the sermon, and we've been giving you a question to kind of think about. So the question I want you guys to think about today is, in what ways has comparison led to pride in your life? 
But I don't want you to just get stuck in the uh, shame of seeing the pride in yourself or feeling bad about it. I want you to be able to repent and to accept God's grace uh, all in this time. So I'm going to pray for us, um, and then I'll walk us through communion, because we're going to take communion as well during this time. And you can take it at whatever point you feel comfortable while the, uh, Zach and Andrea are playing the song. But I, I think communion is a great reminder of those things. It reminds us that we've been reconciled to God through Jesus' death, uh, and that we can accept his grace and um, be reconciled to God and to those around us in community. So I'm going to pray, um, and then I'll have Zach and Andrea come up after that. Father, we praise you that your plan is unfair, because you were willing to sacrifice yourself uh, for all of us who didn't deserve it in a way that none of us would have expected. So Lord, we praise you for that, and we ask that you would be with us this morning as we examine our own hearts uh, to see the ways that comparison has led to pride in all of us. I just ask that you would be with us as we... As we um, pray about that and process those things, that you would give us the spirit of grace as we repent and accept that from you. In your name we pray. Amen.